0: A better way.
1: Hi, folks. This is Jack Spearka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 10th, 2017, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. It is time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Call, our Expert Council Q&A Show, uh, to send in a question for an expert. Just send me an email, put TSPC expert in the subject line. Send that to jack at com. and please, in your email, say, My question is for expert council member, their name, and my question is one sentence, one question, return, return details. Do that for me, please. It will help make everything better, and it will help you clarify what your question actually is, too, so that your expert panel member can do the best job possible to give you an answer. If you want to meet all the members of our expert council, remember, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, hover on About, and you'll see a link there to meet the expert council, and all the expert council member shows have a list of the council members, a link to meet them, and links to all of their own websites so you can see what they're all about and ask them questions. Today, we have a good lineup for you. Keith Snow will be talking about food storage. Uh, Stephen Harris will talk about running a generator with natural gas from, like, natural gas delivered to your home by a utility company and why you probably shouldn't do it the way the person asking is asking how, even though he's gonna gonna tell you how to do it. Uh, Mike and Sue LaPreeze will talk about if you want to homeschool but your spouse is like, "Uh uh-uh. No, those are those weird kids that don't talk to anybody, and they don't get social skills and all the objections everybody else has. And he's your spouse with those objections. How do you handle that? They have a great answer for you on that. Nick Ferguson will chime in on uh, on trees for school campuses. A guy wants to do a noble thing, plant some awesome trees around a school campus, specifically a grade school campus, and have some ideas. And Nick is going to say, well, maybe you don't want to quite do it that way. Uh, next up, Michael Jordan is going to address concerns about toxic honey. And I will finish off with some thoughts on people that want to turn mountain land into productive land and a reality check with that, and uh, a reason that you might want to do it, but you might want to change your mindset about how you're going to do it. Before we do that, let's go ahead and get um, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. There's only one official Berkey guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot .com. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Second Amendment Jewelry. They provide gifts, jewelry, and accessories made from spent shell casings. You can use the key, the coupon code TSP Bus Directory in their Etsy store for ten percent off your entire order. What a cool thing. Jewelry made from spent brass. Second Amendment jewelry. Check them out in the TSP Business Directory. And remember, your business can be listed in our directory for as little as five bucks per six month period at TSPbiz.com. Okay, so time for the year that was the episode. Alex Shrug is still uh, recovering from his issues. Um, that we'll just leave at that and is not available to this, uh a gentleman from the audience, I don't know if he wants to be named, so I'm not going to name him today, stepped up and decided to do a little bit for us in the business directory, uh, specifically just giving us notable births for the year. So I'm going to read those off, and, and thank you, sir, for doing this. Uh, who was born this year? Politicians that were born this year. Louis Frisch, uh fifth director of the FBI. Rick Perry, 47th governor of Texas. Samuel Alito, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. Jill Stein, Green Party nominee and president, uh, nominee for president in 2012 and 2016. And Chucky e. Schumer, Democrat U.S. Senator for New York, who I wish would crawl up his own ass and die. That's not the person that wrote this. That's, that's my comments. Entertainers born this year William James Bill Murray. Bill Murray, Ghostbuster fame, and others. Uh, Caddyshack, Groundhog Day, all kinds of stuff born this year. Steve Hardaway-Judkins, better known as Stevie Wonder, blind musician known for songs such as Sir Duke Superstition, and I Just Called to Say I Love You. I like that song. James Douglas Muir, Jay Leno, stand-up comedian born this year. And Philip Calvin McGraw, better known as Dr. Phil, and hosted Dr. Phil since 2002. I like how he's giving away everybody's real names here, you know. Scientist, Sir Alec Jeffries, a British geneticist who developed techniques for DNA fingerprinting, born this year. Russell Allen Hulse, American psychiatrist who got a Nobel Prize in physics, is born this year. And Robert B. Langwin, who shared a Nobel Prize in physics with Horst L. Stromer and Daniel C. Soy for their discovery of a new form of quantum fluid with fractionally charged excitations. All of those guys born this year. I wanted to uh, to kind of talk to you a little bit about something else that happens in 1950. Um, one is Senator McCarthy uh, rises to power and the beginning of McCarthyism, which is this witch hunt for communists in America. And to be fair, there are some uh, that are a problem, but McCarthyism, if you know anything about it, is a textbook for going ape shit, looking for things that aren't there, and accusing all kinds of people like a nut job. Uh, And that still happens today, and we need to be aware of that. But another thing happens, and it's kind of tied in with this whole thing with the communists, the Red Scare. The Korean War begins in 1950. And in the summer of 1950, the North Korean forces invade South Korea. And what we had done is we left uh, a poorly trained, half-assed Korean, South Korean uh, military, and we left, like, completely left the country. Uh, because, well, we had other things to be doing now, and not, not interfering with other people's nations is a credo of the U.S., especially at the time, even though we didn't always lead up to it, uh, live up to it. But, so, the the the, the Russians uh, left a really heavily equipped, well-trained North Korean military. And when we left, the, the, the Russians weren't there. They were just helping them. And in poor, the North Koreans into South Korea and take over a large part of the Korean peninsula. Our military comes in and, and, and lands actually on the north side Uh, of the boundary line that is, of course, known as the very famous 38th Parallel and basically commits a pincher movement and forces from the south as well and drive the North Korean forces well up into the North Korean Peninsula. They're able to retake uh, the South Korean capital and form a defensive boundary on the, the border. This all happens very quickly under General MacArthur. Very quickly. Um, textbook quickly. Efficiently. But at the time that this was all going on, there was a lot of chest beating uh, in the U.S. period because of how World War II ended. And a lot of belief that we were the greatest power on the planet and no one could even stand up to us. And people's memories got short, and I guess they thought, forgot about how long and how much blood was spilled in World War II. And a lot of young up-and-comer military officers were in our military. And there was a very big belief that, you know, because all this Iron Curtain shit going on in Europe, what we should have done in World War II is as soon as we took took out Germany, we should have invaded Eastern Europe and pushed the rushkies back to Russia. And there was a lot of belief at that, that that, that they should have cut Patton loose, etc. And this mindset's still going on. At this point, had we formed a well-defended front at the 38th parallel and stopped, the next roughly three years of war and bloodshed would probably have never happened. Instead, this mindset took over, and UN forces, chiefly U.S., Drove the South Korean, or North Koreans all the way to the Yellow River, which in the winter froze over. And human waves of Chinese soldiers entered the war on behalf of the North Koreans. There's more to the story than that. Some of this has to do with Truman sending the uh, U.S. Navy fleet uh, to prevent any kind of aggression by China onto Taiwan. That certainly didn't help. But if you're China and all of a sudden there are a mass of U.S. forces on your southern border, you start to worry. This was one of those key pivotal points in history where we can look back and say, well, what I would have done is, and we don't know what we would have done. And we're not even sure if China would have stayed out of the war had we taken the the stance of, we're putting things back the way they're supposed to be. We do know this, though. Once that was reestablished we went into a multi-decade long stalemate you know the korean war is still officially not over it's one of the scars of history it's also interesting to me that a three-year war turned into a 12-year television series called mash just something to think about there and folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to Learn More. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. With that, let's go ahead and take our uh, first question. This one is for Chef Keith Snow on food storage. Hey, Chef, take it away.
2: Hey, Brian. It's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. wanted to answer your question about storing food and putting food up. Now, um, one of the questions you were asking was about potato flakes and their shelf life. Now, remember, when they quote a shelf life on potato flakes, they're talking about the ones that come in those uh, cheapo um, cardboard boxes, now, you can imagine a cardboard box only offers so much protection against moisture. And that shelf life, eh, you might be able to stretch it a little bit if you're, say, in the western part of the United States. But out east where it's humid, I mean, you open a bag of potato chips here and, man, if they're not eaten in a day or so, they're, they they are go to mush. However, out in Colorado, for instance, um, when we were with my in-laws over Christmas, I mean, we had stuff open for two weeks and it was still as crisp after two weeks, as it was on day one. So keep that in mind with shelf life. Now, um, you can go and buy canned potato flakes. I want to say canned in a special number 10 can from a place like Emergency Essentials. And it's got a 25-year shelf life. Now, it's pretty much the same potato flakes that you're going to buy in the box. However, they're put into a can, and there's an oxygen absorber or two in there, and they last A long time. Now, um, you certainly can get shelf life um, of 10, 15 years easy just by doing vacuum packing or mylar bags with um, oxygen absorbers with these potato flakes. Now, one of the things um, that a lot of people do is they buy a lot of food in bulk and then they package it in bulk. And then when you open it up, um, you're not gonna go through it that fast. So I do recommend if you're if you're gonna buy bulk potato flakes for instance, definitely pack them up into smaller amounts. And I would look at the, the weight of one of those boxes in the store and shoot for around that um, weight. That way you have um, you just have a, a bucket that says potato flakes on it, but when you open it up there's uh, multiple bags in there, that way you don't have to um repackage things. You can just use it um, until it goes off. Now other question you had about uh, buckets is making sort of um, easier to access meals in buckets. Now, this is a good idea. It's definitely a touch anal. A lot of people won't do it. But if you think about your food storage, and let's just say you have a room filled with buckets, um, that can get a bit overwhelming, especially, like I just said, you don't want to open up, for instance, a 50-pound bag of, of uh, wheat berries, for instance. Now, these are things, any of those bulk items I do, just what I said, like wheat berries will be packed into five-pound um, Mylar bags or vacuum-packed, and, and I always put an O2 absorber in it, but I will do those in much smaller amounts. So if you open that wheat bucket, for instance, there'll be, I don't know, maybe eight or ten five-pound um, individually wrapped uh, bags in there. That way you don't have to deal with repackaging. And that's the same thing with rice. Um, I'll go a little heavier on some of the rice because I'm not so worried about that spoiling. But your idea of making buckets that have multiple meals in them is a pretty good idea. Um, like, for instance, let's say you have a, a pasta bucket. You can put all individual items that you're going to need in there to make different pasta dishes. So, for instance, uh you could have canned tomatoes in there, um, dried herbs, dried garlic or freeze-dried garlic and onions, different selections of pasta, maybe a can of butter. Um, and then you'll be able to, maybe some olive oil, take that one bucket and have multiple ways to make pasta. Or, I don't know, maybe you could do individual ones like a beef stroganoff bucket where you could have freeze-dried beef, canned mushrooms, you know, bottle of uh, Worcestershire sauce, freeze-dried sour cream, a few bags of egg noodles. You could do a chili bucket where you have, you know, freeze-dried beef or chicken, freeze-dried cheese, you know, bean flakes or regular beans, and then seasoning packets. So this is not a bad idea. So rather than um, open up multiple buckets to dig out things to make one meal, you've got some of these sort of, uh you know, kind of meal in a bucket type situation going on. And I would just think through, you know, another one you could do is something with rice where maybe you have rice and freeze-dried cheese, freeze-dried broccoli, stock cubes, freeze-dried chicken, And you can make a rice casserole or something like that. But I would think through some of the major proteins and just, uh, again, what you like to eat. And I would put those buckets together that way. And that's a really good idea. Like I said, it is a bit anal. Most people probably won't go through the trouble to do that. But I really do like the idea. And the more I think about it, it makes sense. Now, um, also, again, definitely make sure that you're packaging things in smaller smaller lots, as that makes it much easier to handle later on. So Brian, great question, man. Uh, I like the way you're thinking and definitely store potato flakes because they are, I tell you what, the more I cook with them, the more I love those darn things. And I'll be working a new video for the food storage feast course, um, probably today. And it's, it's got cabbage in it and potato flakes and a little bit of, um, bacon and it's just a wonderful thing to eat I mean I absolutely love eating it and it's you know together in 10 minutes flat so uh, those potato flakes are are super versatile now um, those of you that are interested in the food storage feast course um you guys and gals, particularly you TSPers, were, were very supportive, so we um offered 30 spots for a special price of $97. A lot of those have been taken, but there are definitely some left. If you go to foodstoragefeast.com and, and use that path, you'll hit a landing page, and it is uh, active at that price until they're gone, and probably when this airs, they'll go uh, rather quickly, so... Just uh, take advantage of that, and thanks for all your support. The course is doing great, and we continue to add new content to it each week. So um, with that, this has been Chef Keith Snow for the expert counsel here at TSP. Thanks for your questions, guys and gals. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks, Jack. Later.
1: Great stuff from Chef Keith. And while we do still keep some long, long-term you know, emergency stores in buckets, I would point out that – most dry goods that we store, we try to, even though we don't do a lot of starches, we try to use a little bit here and a little bit there. And, uh, we, we have gone really heavily toward using a vacuum canner, which is basically, um, dry vacuum sealing in standard mason jars. And, and that works really great for a variety of reasons. If you keep them in a, a dark, you know, environment, which we do, we have two huge pantries upstairs. And uh, that's where we keep the bulk of our long-term storage stuff. It, it, it doesn't matter; it's clear. But when you open it up and look at it, you can see what's in there. Um, it's there. You know, you can pick your poison, I guess, on the size. Um, if you make your own vacuum canner, you could use a tall enough uh, pressure cooker when you make it to do half-gallon cans. Mine does, you know, quarts and down, so we can do quarts, pints, half pints, uh, whatever we want, and we can do a whole bunch really fast. And, uh, that, that's been probably our best go-to for any kind of a dry storable. Um, you do not need to use O2 absorbers when you're doing that, because there ain't no oxygen. You, you're pulling a vacuum equivalent to outer space, uh, in that environment. So that's one thing I'd add. Another thing is, when you're doing a large buckets, uh, one of the things you can consider for an O2 absorber, if you're doing, even if you're doing a bunch of it in mylar, but then you want an O2 absorber for the bucket itself, and I'm really recommending, if you think you're going to be opening it and using it and then closing it again, that you, you want to do this with what's called a Gamma lid. And these are a lid where the, the ring snaps on and then the, the, the screws tie it with a gasket for an air seal. Instead of having to pry it off, you can unscrew it. And if you go, especially this time of year when a lot of the department stores have them on clearance, to any sporting goods store, big box store, the hand warmers for hunters that you you know they're in a little bag you open them up you shake them up they get warm you grab two of them stick them in your pockets and let me tell you they work good for that too those things are like magic when you're on a deer stamp being able to stick your hands into warm pockets because if your hands and feet are warm the rest of you generally feels okay but those are an O2 absorber there's absolutely no difference chemically between them and a regular O2 absorber in in how they work the the outside material may be a little different but What's in there is basically iron filings with a a chemical that speeds up iron oxidation also known as rust. And that means in the presence of oxygen the iron rusts and it rusts really fast and it takes the oxygen up to do that and that's how it produces heat. Well, in a very, you know, a, a sealed environment it'll take all the oxygen it can and then it'll just stop. So for your buckets that you might be opening and you want to have the inside basically O2 absorbed, uh, one of those in there will do that for you. And when it begins to wear out, you can just pop another one in. And again, this time of year, you often find them cheap. Though even during hunting season, I bought a big old mega pack at a uh, at Gander Mountain, and I think it came out to like a dollar a pack, and a pack had two. So they are like the cheapest bulk Uh, O2 absorber you can ever find just wanted to add that Uh, next up I have a question for Stephen Harris on doing your own natural gas plumbing and in the end why you probably shouldn't do it that way hi this is Steve
3: Harris calling in to answer your question for the expert panel this one is for Steve Harris my question is does it matter what type of material a quick connect fitting is made from to run an air hose from a natural gas line in my home to my natural gas generator or my generator that runs on gasoline, propane, or natural gas. I have a Champion generator model, blah, it's a 3,000-watt, running 4,000-watt peak unit, and it has blah-blah size engine. And I've installed a a tri-fuel conversion kit and have determined that I can run a half-inch hose up to 50 feet from the natural gas supply, which is a half-inch black pipe, I want to uh, fit that with a quick connect. I want to fit that with a quick connect fitting. Does the material of the fitting is made from matter for natural gas? Does it need to be brass, or can it be made from steel? The gas line is in my home. It's in the the gas line is in the gas fireplace insert. There's a ban on using the model of the insert we have. It's been deemed unsafe and the company's out of business. It will not be replaced anytime soon. The air hose can be routed outside to the generator through the fresh air vent in the fireplace. No, it doesn't matter whether it's brass or steel. The fact of the matter is you cannot use a quick connect fitting with natural gas or propane. A quick connect fitting like you use on an air hose has little itty-bitty holes in it um, about the size. It has like three or four holes in it about the size of a nail or of a toothpick. And this is for 150 PSI pounds per square inch of air pressure. It runs through the little holes just fine. Natural gas is four to six inches of water column in pressure. Which translated to PSI is nowhere near 150 PSI. It's 0.25 PSI. So there is nowhere enough oomph in pressure to push natural gas or propane through an airline quick connect type fitting. You cannot do it. You will not do it. It will not work for you. You will suffer, and you will be disgusted. What you have to do is if you are using something like I've advocated as a a ventless natural gas heater inside the house for an emergency, or you're using a natural gas generator outside of the house For emergency power, because natural gas, really, it doesn't fail. It just keeps on working. It's like having an unlimited supply of gasoline. You'd be a fool not to be able to take advantage of it while you had it. And then if it failed after a month or two, you could use gasoline. The thing is, what you have to do with your airline is you have to take a knife and you have to cut the quick connect ends off of your airline. Then your airline is usually three-eighths, eight, three-eighths inch internal diameter. And you gotta get a brass three-eighths inch barbed fitting. And you gotta put a natural gas valve on it with natural gas tape on your fireplace. And you put the same barbed fitting on your generator. Um it's the, uh, the pressure adapter on the generator the and the pressure converter on the generator you put a brass fitting on there and this is a barbed brass fitting so what you do is you plug the line into the house you run the line outside you leave it open you take a worm clamp and worm clamp on down the uh airline to the fitting inside the house. You turn on the gas, you go outside, and when you start to be able to smell the gas, because it takes a while for 0.25 PSI of gas to go through a 50- or 100-foot airline, then you plug it into the natural gas port on the generator and you worm clamp it down and then you prime it and you start it on natural gas and you are a happy camper. Note, this is not something you really want to do if you have children in the house. If for some reason they're playing along and they turn that valve on inside the house and I've got mine connected to the hot water heater downstairs, Uh if they turn that on and let the natural gas out, and you get enough of a natural gas built up into your house, uh one, it's going to smell so sickening because of the mercaptan uh, odorant that's placed in it, you'd be vomiting. But if that happens and it finds the ignition source, like the pilot light for your furnace or your hot water tank, your house is going to go kaboom, as you've seen on TV and blow itself into literally a million pieces there'll be nothing but matchsticks left so this is not something that you casually or easily do when you have children in the house or someone who might accidentally turn this on this is for adults in the house you have an emergency need for a ventless natural gas heater because the power has failed you have a generator outside that you want to run uh power to, uh, natural gas to, then you can do it. And I have found you can run uh up to 30,000 BTUs per hour of natural gas through a 100-foot, 3-eighths-inch airline just fine. I've done it on a regular basis to a ventless natural gas heater, and it works just absolutely outstanding. But then I don't have anyone to trip over lines and pull them off the ends and, you know, cause a natural gas or a propane incident like that. So I have all of the connections you need to do this on solar1234.com. Just scroll down and you'll see the thing about running on natural gas. I have complete bill of goods from Home Depot with the receipt. Uh You can get all the parts, you can see all the parts, you can see how they go together, and they go on to the bottom of the, the drip line that is on the bottom of your water tank, of your hot water tank. It's easy to turn off the gas to the hot water tank, unscrew the bottom, screw this on, and then you have a natural gas outlet in your house. It is not to code. It is illegal. And if you have children around who might turn it on, it is dangerous. So, you know, preparedness can be a thing that's dangerous, and it's preparedness is something that keeps you from danger. So my best advice is to not do it. If you have a natural gas generator outside, have a plumber come and install black natural gas pipe all the way from the source in the house underground over to a spigot that you can put a flexible metal natural gas line like you do for your clothes dryer into it and that goes onto to the generator. This will all be up to code and it'll all be legal. It'll all be safe. That is my best legal recommendation I can give you for what you should do with your natural gas generator outside of your house. If you are a member of the Membership Support Brigade, do not forget you can go in there and you can get a code to get 15% off all of my books and DVDs at knowledgepublications.com. And if you want to hear everything I have done with Jack, all of my free classes, especially for your newbies, it's some of the best stuff you're ever going to listen to. It's all no BS. Hands-on, do it right now. Please go on over to stephen1234.com. Thanks, guys. Call in or email
1: in some more questions, please. Thank you. Good stuff, and I agree. The irony is that most of the people in this audience that know the trick of doing it with an air hose know it because of Stephen Harris. Of course, Stephen Harris teaches you how to do all things under all situations. And there may be a time when that type of um, a piece together might be something that you would consider doing. In what we I guess we would call peace time, do things the right way. It's just the safer, better way to do things. And it, it doesn't really cost that much money. And I'll, I'll tell you this. The way that you save money when you're going to have a plumber do this stuff is you, you, you get in touch with someone who's who's qualified to do the work in advance. You ensure that you're using the right material. You run it and bury it yourself, and you pay them to do the terminations and final fitting and stuff like that. That's a good way to save money with it because there's no sense in paying somebody you know, that charges $300 an hour or something like that to dig a ditch, which is what you're going to do if you, if you don't dig the ditch yourself. If the person you find or the people around you you find are not comfortable with you uh, doing what I just said, uh, what they will be definitely comfortable with is you dig the ditch... They bring the material and stick it in the ditch. They do it. That way they know it's buried to code depth or whatever. And then after that, you fill the ditch in. That's still going to save you money. I don't mind paying a little bit of upcharge on the materials. And if if that's what it takes to get it done, then fine. Uh, We've done this a lot of times ourselves with things like electrical work. Uh, we had to put a 220 line into one place and dug a ditch, put the line in the ground, buried it, had an electrician do the, the final part of it, and, and, and that'll save money. So just another piece of that to make it a little bit easier to buy that pill and get it professionally done. Next, I have a question for Mike and Sue Laprise on homeschooling, specifically what if one spouse wants to and the other one doesn't.
4: This is Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel. Thanks, Jack. I really want to give you a personal thanks, Soon, I want to give you a shout out, because so much of what you do, we apply to our everyday life. So your show is such a resource for us, and I, I, we just want to personally thank you. So today, we're going to talk about a question that we received from Lori. Lori would like to know how we would convince a spouse that homeschooling would be the best option for a child. There's a little bit of a background. Lori's a stay-at-home mom with a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a baby due in February. Her five-year-old is in kindergarten at a local government school, and she thinks that her husband is afraid that her daughter will not be receptive to Lori teaching her because she has resisted in the past. And then she also mentions that there are some rules in her state. I don't know what state you're in, Lori, but that's just rules to follow, so I don't see that as a big issue. But let me tell you about my story. So I have to confess here that I was an anti-homeschooler. So my experience was in the mid-70s, I grew up in the inner city for one thing. So I grew up in the inner city, and in the mid-70s, in the building next to my house where I lived, there was a homeschool family, and they had a daughter. And let's just say that they were different. Okay, let me be honest. They were weird. And so my perception of homeschooling was that girl, who didn't play with any of the kids in the neighborhood, and 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 that was my that was what in, was imprinted on my mind of what a homeschooler was, and so when Sue first got pregnant, she mentioned homeschooling, and it was like for me I was like uh nope I don't think so, um, and now we've been homeschooling for just over 25 years, so how that all started was like this, unbeknownst to me, Sue just started, and I'll let Sue tell her story from her perspective.
5: So, you probably heard me say that I really hated school growing up because we had this marvelous, adventurous life. Lived on a lake in Southern California with horses and school was like the stupidest thing I could think of. So, when Michael was like, "Uh, no, I just got started because I was determined. And we were living in Rhode Island at the time, which is a really hard homeschooling state. But I just want to say the force was strong in me and we moved back to Texas. So... um, I got the easy homeschool state, and my our first kid, it was so easy. He was reading by the time he was four, and I was like, oh, I'm so awesome. And then kindergarten rolled around, and he'd already finished his first grade curriculum. And when I told Michael, hey, I'm going to register him for kindergarten, Michael's like, what? I thought he finished first grade. And I said, well, he did, but you said he had to go to school. And Michael gave us a one-year reprieve for kindergarten. He said I could homeschool him for kindergarten, but during the kindergarten year, he finished second and third grade, and so finishing third grade when first grade comes around is um, not so fun to go to school and be in first grade, and I also thought, I am really, really good at this.
4: So we learned it starts with the grown-ups. So spouses have to be uh, in one accord, and so what I would say is, you've got to get your together together. So at this point in time, I was comfortable with Sue teaching, and I thought, man, she is great. And then our second child started school at home, and our second child uh, is dyslexic. And that's when Sue really became a good homeschool mom. She started to research, she really started to learn, and she really poured herself into our daughter, and, and in loving her, and in loving homeschooling, and meeting the needs of our chi- ch- child. When our second child started homeschooling, we had already had two more kids. So at this point, we had four children at home. But Sue just poured herself into meeting the needs of each child.
5: And so the really important thing I learned is I'm not that great. It takes a lot of work. And one of the important parts is to make it fun. It has to be fun because that's when your kids will remember and they'll love you for it. So one of the fun things, and it doesn't really sound fun, is... Giving your kids meaningful work to do. And so our question today comes from a mom with a 5, a 2, and a newborn. And so I would recommend, it's not just about the ABCs and the 1, two, threes, but you want to start building life skills and cooperation in the home with your kids because that makes it easier as you progress. But one of my favorite things for this age group is the Montessori Method and they have excellent life skill activities that you do simple things like doing one activity at a time and putting it away when you're done and you know eating politely at the table different things like that that are really good and so all of these things you're having your child do they're setting the table they're putting their games away they're getting their activity out and they're great life skills and then my latest one that I really love is you can find this free on YouTube is a series called love and logic where it's some parenting stuff that's good for teachers, too, or grandparents, you know, just anybody who's working with children that's listening. It has real clear principles and real easy applications for parents or teachers to apply. My favorite, like, all-time book is a Boundaries series by Townsend. It's Boundaries, um, B-O-U-N-D-A-R-I-E-S, and it's just really excellent because, um He has them for different age groups, for spouses, teenagers, and it just really helps you kind of organize your home and communicate more clearly with your family. But then I recommend don't go all in on one style, because like if you go all in on Montessori, then your kid gets to be 10, 11, 12, and you're like... Now what do I do? I just went all in a Montessori. So you have to keep learning and researching and um, asking questions. Ask lots and lots of questions. And you can actually email me and ask me questions. And if I have some time, I would be glad to answer them for you.
4: So summer is here. Okay, well, in South Texas, we've had days <laughs> in the upper 80s the last few days. So, but summer is coming, and this is a great time for you to get a game plan together. And when summer comes, work your plan demonstrate that you're learning and that you're learning to teach your daughter and you're developing teaching skills. Convincing your husband really comes down to this. The proof is in the pudding. When he sees what you're doing and when he sees that your daughter is enjoying it, he will be appreciative of that and your daughter will love you for doing it.
5: So the other thing about building that trust is when you're ready for a new adventure in life, then your spouse trusts that you'll follow through. So Michael mentioned that um, we're on a new adventure, which is why we're behind on the emails Jack has sent us. We uh, about in October I came across this lovely picture. Um, we had adopted kids seven years ago. We adopted a sibling group of three, and we have four kids, so that makes seven. And I'm from a family of seven. Yeah, and Michael's I'm
4: from a family of seven.
5: And so I came across a sibling group of seven children on the state adoption website. And um, Michael came home from work one day and I, I asked him if we could have them. And um, he said yes. And so we are working that plan and it's complicated and time consuming. But I just want to say if you pick a dream of homeschooling your kids, and you work that plan and you learn and learn and learn and develop and you and your spouse build trust, then that plan just gets better as the years go by.
4: This has been Michael and Sue Lapreze with HaloBySue.com for the expert counsel, designing the life you'd love to live. And remember, you need to get your together together if you want to have that life that you'd love to live.
1: I have something to add because I'm one of those people like Mike. That one time in my life, I thought homeschooling was a bad idea. I thought it was going to create socially awkward children. Uh, in, you know, in my youth, I'm saying this is back about the time I met Dorothy. We just really started our relationship. We knew we were heading towards something serious. Uh, that type of thing. And one of my first good jobs I got after I met her. Um, so we're talking 20 years ago. I had a sales manager who homeschooled his son, and this guy was kind of a goober. He was a nice guy. I did learn a lot from him from a technical standpoint, but he looked like a guy that walked around with a, you know, a pocket protector and glasses taped together on his nose. He didn't, but that's the kind of guy he looked like. He was also a pretty frail guy, not a very masculine guy, the kind of guy, if you gave him a big hug, you might break his back or something. You get my my point. Um and the one day he he had to have the, his son with him, so he brought a desk in and set him up in the corner of the office and had him sit there and do his schoolwork all day. And I would say he did a, an effective job of helping him get through the problems that he had and stuff like that, but it basically looked like a kid sitting there all day in a corner doing the same shit they do in school. It looked like a kid in, in school suspension is what it looked like to me. And the kid was kind of a goober, and I, get, I, I guess I'll let that reinforce my confirmation bias. Because I never even thought, well, maybe the kid's a goober because his dad's a goober, you dumb goober yourself. And uh, he seemed like a socially awkward kid, which reinforced my confirmation bias. And um, I never thought about the fact that, that his, his, his father, Richard, was a socially awkward person. Probably, you know, those... I don't mean to put it down, but you know, a lot of times socially awkward people find each other and maybe have a socially awkward mother, and it, it really had nothing to do with homeschooling. And, and then even when I thought about it that way a little bit, my thought was, well, that's why they have him homeschooled, because he doesn't fit in in school, which is fine. But I always kind of had this negative connotation on homeschooling. You want to change my mind? Meeting lots of kids that were homeschooled? That were totally not like this young man? that talked to me and looked me in the eye and spoke to me like they were 25 instead of freaking 13. To the point now, when I meet a young person, especially by the time they're into those teens, those mid-teens, like 12, 13, 14, I'll say to them, are you homeschooled? And they'll say, yep. Where I can recognize them because of their their, their command of the language, the way they behave, the way they conduct themselves, the stuff that Mike and Sue were talking about, with not just academics but the social skills, and uh, that did it for me. So my suggestion might be to get your spouse to go to some of the community things that homeschoolers do and meet the kids and meet the parents that are actually doing it, and, and ask him, "Will you do this for me?" You know, or, or if it's, a, it's switched around and it's it's a, the guy trying to convince him, "Will you do this for me?" and have a conversation about it and say, this is how we'll do it. We will not go there and say, I want to do it, and they don't. Because then that's going to create this whole proselytization. We are considering this and seeing if we can make it work. We'd like to learn more about it, and we'd like to tag along for one of your events or something like that, and maybe meet some of the kids and how they feel about it. Because if if if, if there's a person with a, with a hang-up on this, most of the time it's going to be the whole they don't learn social skills, they don't learn this, they don't learn that, uh, they won't be able to fit in and, and whatever. And there is nothing to disprove a fallacy like seeing the reality. And I'm telling you when I started to actually get exposure to young people that were homeschooled, I was done. There was nothing I could say and this is long before you know my my big libertarian awakening. This is long before I really understood how bad government schools sucked. What I was faced with is judging the reality of the product of government school, which I still called public school at the time, and the product of homeschool. And when you put the two products, the two, you know, two things that were produced by each in front of me, I was done. Every objection I could have ever had was gone. Gone. Now, the only other thing that I do see come up, and sometimes I feel like it, it, it's it's a legitimate concern, we've gone to a world of, of two-income households, and sometimes one spouse feels that if the other spouse is going to homeschool, that means they're not going to have a job, and if they're not going to have a job, then, well, we're going to have this whole issue of I'm paying all the bills and they're not, and you see where that goes, and are we going to be able to pay our bills and stuff like that? So that's definitely something that has to be worked out, and I believe a couple has to be unified in all the things that they do. I completely agree with Sue and Mike on that. So if you're going to do it and there's an economic challenge, it can always be overcome, but you need to be on the same sheet as to the mechanism, the how, the what, the why, and the sacrifices to do it. And if you do that and you see the product, I don't think you're going to have much of an objection anymore. Let's take uh the next one here is for Nick Ferguson on um, planting trees in and around uh, school campuses.
6: Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer your questions on homesteading, permaculture, plant propagation, and how to make a homestead work on a tight budget. The question I have today is from Zach, who is in Zone 8B, and this question is on planting trees all around a school. And here are some of the details. He has some Antonovka apple trees and black locusts coming and wants to know if they're a good pick for this location and how he should go about planting them. So I have some good news and some bad news. Uh, those are not what I would call optimal for that kind of location and purpose. The Antonovka apple is more suited to a colder climate than your 8B, but it may be just fine growing there. Time will tell. However, these grow to be quite a nice size, and they're sometimes hard to keep pruned to more reasonable height. They're a full, full-size rootstock. So, it'll be far more likely that you'll run into a little bit of a long-term maintenance issue with having a big tree that's hard to pick that's dropping fruit on the ground. So, rotten fruit on the ground, fruit flies, all sorts of side effects that I'm prob- I'm guessing that your school administration wouldn't particularly care for. But, if you're able to keep them maintained, pruned, and harvested, then those issues should be largely Eliminated. So if you want to tackle those problems, then have at it. I think, uh, that apple should be okay. They're not very expensive. So I'm sure you don't have a whole lot of investment into it, uh, fr- on the apples. The second thing I want to caution you about is the black locust. <clears throat> Were you my client or rather the school my client, I would be highly resistant to the idea of bringing something like black locust ...onto the school grounds. And here's why. You're playing with matches in a fuel depot. Black Locust has thorns that will pierce tractor tires. Yes, once they get about 15 feet tall, uh, 20 feet tall, the thorns kind of mostly go away on, on the main trunk and everything. But they drop limbs with thorns on them. They have thorns on the trunk while the tree is juvenile... And in my opinion, they would be a danger and a liability, especially if you have kids running around in the space, and especially if they're city kids who just aren't familiar with how dangerous nature can be, you know, look where you step and look where you're reaching. So I would very much encourage you to not plant any black locusts there. I think they're just too dangerous. I think they'd actually be a legal liability for the school and you might actually get held responsible if some kid ended up getting hurt a few years down the road maybe not legally responsible but i'd hate to see the administration you know be kind of put on the spot and need to save face with a litigious parent by firing you for some other reason because you are the one who planted the awful things that hurt their baby you know so i would encourage you to stay away from planting black locust where um, where you're going to have kids playing or where your kids are going to be involved. So I think black locust is a poor choice here. If you want a nitrogen-fixing tree to help support the other trees and we want to go with something cheap, black locust is normally cheap, so I'm, I'm guessing that's the reason why you're going with that, then go with something more safe, like mimosa, also called silk tree. Uh, that's albizia Gel. Gelibrisin or Gelibrisin, uh, it can be brittle and branches break easily, but they generally grow small enough to manage. And it grows rapidly. Some people call it invasive. But if we're talking about a lawn area that's getting mown every week or so, then I don't think it would be a big issue for you. They can start easily from seed and the seed is cheap. Uh, you can also go with redbud. That's Circus canadensis. And that is probably the safest pick for your use it's very ornamental they're beautiful they people love it in the springtime when it flowers and i can't imagine why anybody in the school administration years down the road would resent having a bunch of red buds planted around the place it's also relatively easy to start from seed but it is a slow grower so that's the big drawback with red bud is it's quite a slow grower and finally if you want to be a little bit more risky Um, You could go with one of my favorite trees of all time, Polonia. It's called Royal Empress Tree, and it's Polonia tomentosa. Um, There's a couple other ones, but tomentosa is the most common one. Uh, They grow fast. They flower in the spring. Beautiful flowers. They fix nitrogen But they're prolific and they will reseed all over the place. But again, if you're mowing, then it shouldn't be much of an issue. Just know that some people view this one as a weed and as an invasive. Now, the wood is actually highly valuable. Um, so you might want to look into that. Uh, the the seed is cheap and, like I said, they grow fast. They'll grow, uh, they can grow 8, 10 feet in a year. So when it comes to, a quick gro- growing tree to get some, you know, some wow factor. Polonia does it. And they have big leaves too. So, I mean, leaves that kids can cover their whole head in. You know, they're like little umbrellas. They're really cool. So, just from, uh, from an interest perspective, I think kids would be interested in those massive leaves. So, but more to your question on how to go about planting these guys in the landscape. I just follow standard planting directions for trees. You can get some great examples on YouTube by Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctor, on how to plant a tree the organic way. I saw a video on YouTube on that. That was the title, How to Plant a Tree the Organic Way. Howard Garrett, that's two R's and two T's. And here's the biggest thing I can say about planting your trees. Please make sure that you plant the tree with the root crown at the natural soil surface, don't bury that root crown. If you need an example, you have two examples built right into your body, your left arm and your right arm. So hold one of them up, hold your elbow up in the air with your fingers pointed straight to the ground and open your hand, you know, splay your fingers out and look at how your forearm transitions to your splayed hand. It looks like a trunk of a tree with a root crown and root sticking out and down like it's not in the ground, you know. The carpal and metacarpal part of your wrist and palm is the root crown. If you see a tree that grew as a seed in the forest, it will have a splayed base that runs out into lateral supporting roots, unless it got buried. You almost never see a tree with a trunk that goes straight into the dirt like a telephone pole. So try and make sure you plant it with that swelling root crown at the soil surface. Don't bury that part. Don't even bury it in mulch. But keep them well mulched and well watered for the first year. And do not fertilize them or add any compost to that hole. Don't amend that hole. Put it right in the native soil, water it in well, backfill all the soil, level it off. If you want to add compost, then you add compost to the top of the soil after it's planted and the hole is backfilled, it's watered in, and it's leveled off right before you add the mulch. And here's something I like to encourage people to do. Go to a forested area and harvest some rotten branches and leaf mold. Crumble that stuff up and add it to the soil surface right under the mulch, um, right before you put the mulch on, and it will inoculate that area with beneficial fungi for free. It's free. You don't have to buy expensive mycorrhizal root dip stuff. That stuff works great. Most of those products are good, but you don't have to spend any money to get a relatively comparatively uh, efficient response, um, you can get that stuff for free for the most part in your local forest. So that's what I say to do with those. If you have some swales, I think you have some uh, some small swales on site, plant your most uh, valuable trees in that, that swale berm so that they can benefit from that passive uh, water infiltration whenever it rains. I hope that helps you out, Zach. Best of luck. And if you have any follow-up questions, just send me an email to nick at com. And a quick note to the TSP audience and community. I may be putting on a plant sale event this spring around the end of April, beginning of May. We have southern highbush rabbit-eye blueberries that are blooming, ready to fruit this year that we'll be selling um, for the same price that you can get like little four-inch or six-inch blueberry bushes we have fruit trees nut trees blackberry bushes tons of stuff we've got comfrey so if you guys are interested in coming to louisiana to check out my homestead and pick up some plants and have a great time i'm seriously considering doing this no charge for the event just come one come all there's camping available next door at the the county park we'll have coffee and stuff like that but this is bring your own food Campfire camping type stuff, BYOB, take care of your own needs, but there will be lots of plants to pick from, even some livestock. I'll have rabbits for sale, chicken and quail. I think it would be a great time, but I need to see if the TSP community is interested in coming here for something like that. So shoot me an email and let me know or hit up the Homegrown Liberty Facebook group and let me know if you're interested in coming down to Louisiana for an event like that. It's in Saline, Louisiana, S-A-L-I-N-E, like Saline Solution. And just send me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com. That's where you send the email if you're interested in coming. To hear more from me, check out my website at homegrownliberty.com, where I have 50 or so podcasts and blog posts on homesteading, gardening, raising rabbits, goats, training dogs, all sorts of stuff. I hope you all have a wonderful day. Do good things.
1: I think that'll be really cool if he has that event. and I'll bring you more information about it as he uh, as he gets uh, solidified on it. But you know, definitely either send him an email or comment in the show notes today if you'd be interested in getting out there to Louisiana and. And hanging out, I know he was talking about doing it for not, you know, a real heavy expense or anything like that. Basically, people can't take care of their own food, that type of thing. And just kind of a get-together and an opportunity to pick up some really cool plants from a really cool plant dude. That's who Nick Ferguson is. Uh, next, I have a question for uh, Michael Jordan on the concerns around the concept of a toxic honey. What's that all about? Michael, tell us.
7: Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your calls on bees, apiary management, and mead making. I've got a question on toxic honey. This is my question, and it's a really good one. Michael, can honey be toxic straight from the hive? I live in Antelope Valley, California. We have many wild bees around and many beekeepers, local and not local, have put their hives in our area every year. My wife and I are thinking about starting a hive. We have lots of flowering plants, sage, poppy, elderberry bushes, chia, and a wide variety of desert plants. One of the desert plants that has me most concerned is the datura. D-A-T-U-R-A. It has hallucinogenic properties and can be lethal. We've heard that honey could make the properties of this nectar that is generated by the breeze fatal i just wanted to clarify if there's any concerns of this if so is there a way to tell good honey from bad thanks tim from antelope valley california all right tim this is a great question about toxic honey uh detra is a genus of nine species of poisonous vesperine plants belonging to the family of salinocena they are commonly known as detris, but they have many names that are common that people mostly use, such as the devil's trumpet. And it's not to be confused with angel's trumpet. That's, there's a difference. That's why they call it devil's trumpet. It's closely related to the genus brug- Brugmansa. They are also sometimes called moonflowers, or weed, devil's weed, hell's bells, or thorned apple. All species of dutra are poisonous, especially the seeds and flowers. One question that I'm always asked is, what if my bees collect nectar from pollen of plants that I'm allergic to, like poison oak or poison hemlock, poison milkweed? Well, fortunately, the word toxic plant doesn't necessarily translate to toxic honey. In fact, many beekeepers speak of poison oak honey as the richest and creamiest honey they've ever enjoyed. As far as detra, um, I would say there's no way honeybees could get enough nectar from them in a given amount of time. They're actually open when the bees are, they're, they're not, you know, they're not open when bees are foraging. Unless it's like a big field of clover or lavender. If you had a big field of it and the bees could really get into it, um, I doubt you would end up with that your honey unless it 'd be that that way now they are called moonflowers for a reason because they don 't bloom until the end of the day, and most of your bees are on the way back but that does not mean that they cannot absorb the nectar flow and make honey um, you know I, I want I want you to think about something that if you if you have any plants that you think that you you want to analyze or anything um, you know on that note you can always have your honey analyzed you can go to the national honey boards website and find a place near you it is uh the sites are usually you know you can get on there and type in find a honey testing lab near me and they will take care of everything for you and it's very nice to have these places they check for pollen count what kind of sugar content there is even check if one of the 300 different pesticides there are that may even be used near you Um, you can call one near you, uh, take some honey with you go there, talk to them, tell them what they're looking for and see what they have to say now we do this Uh, we even charge a little bit more for our honey if you want the certification from it for pollen count to show that it is raw and natural so you know some beekeepers actually go to these facilities and get it spectral analyzed to see where they're getting their honey from. It tells even what kind of pollens are being used. So if if you're worried about your honey being overflown with the moonflower, um, you're able to go through and they'll do a pollen check and count and tell you exactly what kind of plants they're eating on, and and how toxic the honey could possibly be. Now, there are a few plants that are taken for hallucinogenic properties. I would not recommend taking any of them. Of course, there are a few of us curious ones that have, and I will say that symptoms from DITRA toxicity occur typically within 60 minutes after if, after ingesting it, and continues for about 24 to 48 hours. Uh, the toxic effects include um, confusion, anxiety, and hallucinations. Uh, this is then followed by stomach craps and diarrhea. So something to think about. if If you do think you've ingested something that is bad, Remember, any type of hallucinogenic plant, mushroom, or anything like that does cause food poisoning. And it's one of the things that's ingested and gets into your system that causes you to have stomach cramps and these toxic effects. So, you know, you should drink a lot of water, flush it out, uh, go to a poison control center, and just see what you need to flush most of that stuff out. The National Honey Board will have information on more of that stuff and where to go for locations to test honey. Now, I uh, have a really good thing about the National Honey Board, and if you get to its website to find Honey Testing Lab, if you ever find honey that you feel is not raw, or additives in it that are not on the label, or you feel they're misrepresenting what they have, test it. Take it to them. Have it tested. And if it comes up that there's it's not raw honey, that there's soy oil, corn sugar, and other things in there. Let the honey board know. They'll go right in and they'll close the doors on these people. And we need more people to do this and shut out bad honey that's being sold at a low cost. This is undercutting some of those hardworking beekeepers that want to give you a great product. And and I, you know and and we work really hard uh, between feeding them, moving the bees, inspecting them. And then doing analyticals to see if we've got good pollen counts and if we've got a good raw honey source. That a lot of honey that's brought in is then shipped and undersold as a different product for honey, and it it comes up as a a, a terrible product. But it's sold, you know, for you know two dollars a pound, maybe even less. So those are some things to think about. That it's not only looking for to see if your honey's raw. But, yes, you can use this analytical to see if you have uh, noxious plants and stuff. So this was a really good question, Tim. I'm glad you brought it up. There is a lot of good honeys out there that have hallucinogenic values. Um, I've had Himalayan honey, and I've had some other honeys that that do this. I know that when you use uh, Canadian thistle honey and stuff like that, it, it it helps numb your teeth a little bit. So it's almost like using... Ambosol in your mouth a little bit. Uh, Monoleuca honey has some peroxide and some uh, antibiotic effects with it that go with it. It makes it extremely expensive. And so there are some really good honeys out there. But I'm really glad that you're trying to check out what your floral is. It's another reason to develop floral patterns. So you should get a chart out, see what flowers are blooming at certain times. Uh, Maybe you can cut down some of the risks if if you feel that this is a necessary thing to avoid. And you can move your bees or even isolate them from these plants. I'm going to let you know, moonflower, once it starts, it's hard to get rid of. So that's that's another thing that you need to think of. But doing floral charts, you can actually see what the nectar flows are and what you're getting at the times that you need. And I'm glad you reached out on this question because, like I said, you're not always, just because you're getting a... Nectar flow from a toxic plant doesn't mean it's bad for you. That some plants do carry things that are bad for you. And sometimes we want to analyze the honey we have to see if you're getting a good viable product from your producers. That is one reason why I always say, I am Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company here in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And I want you to buy your honey from a beekeeper respect and buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace. And remember, as Tim's just reaching out for help, Help your fellow man because one day you're going to
1: need this help too. All right, good stuff by Michael Jordan. I, I would personally say that I think the concern is over uh, overblown a little bit. Sometimes in, in the world of honey that you're going to get toxic honey, if you think about how many beekeepers are out there, how many of us are keeping, you know, four or five hives in our backyard, taking honey from it, using it? And when the last time is you heard somebody took honey out of their hive and, and got sick because of it, because of a, a toxic plant or something like that, um, it, it's very, very minimal. Uh, but bees will work what's available. And some of the plants that I've, I've heard can actually cause problems are things like goat's bane, and uh, rhododendron. Uh, but you see, if you think about cattle in a field uh, a natural pasture there's toxic plants in that pasture and those cattle will consume that and people will eat milk and uh, drink the milk and milk product out and the cow doesn't die and people don't die unless it's a heavy graze of a single thing Uh, we learned about that in the history segment i can't remember what plant it was and and generally that's when other things aren't available and bees are going to work the same way so the only way you're going to have bees like really building up uh, toxic honey is going to be if there's just such an abundance of of, of the something that's toxic and exclusion of everything else. And there are certain places in the world where that occurs, but in general, I don't see that being much of a problem in America. And I think Michael basically, from what he said, agrees. But if you're in doubt, you can have your honey tested. Uh, the next one is one for me and will be the final question of the day and it's from Rob in PA. And Rob says, How realistic is it to turn mountain land that's either been clear-cut completely or just heavily wooded into a simple pasture-type system? We are looking to buy land and not be in debt when we do it. Some of the land that fits the price range has enough acreage for us is heavily wooded or clear-cut land. Some of it is steep and other just normal rolling terrain with water. My thought was to get land on the cheap if it had good water and access and then thin out trees on contour or key line and use existing species as the basis for initial mainframe design until we can start planting other productive species. The part of the wooded area that gets think potentially be sold for lumber or used to help build future structures. Is this type of approach realistic in your view? The other issue that we face is we won't be able to move onto this property for another three to five years. I plan to use my current high salary to pay for the land improvements and keep us out of debt. It will be hard to manage this land several hours, four to seven away. Once the mainframe design was set up, I would run hogs and maybe goats through it until there was enough forage for ruminants. It's a big restoration project, but is it worth it? Thanks, and keep up the great work, Rob from PA. Um, There's a lot of moving parts there. First of all, let me tell you, I think it's going to be very hard for you to do much with a piece of land like this with this type of design and management while you're five to seven hours away from it. Um, you don't know what you're doing or you wouldn't be asking the question. I don't say that as an insult, but you just you don't know how to do this. And that means there's going to be a bigger learning curve than if you did, and it would already be a challenge if you did know how to do this to like go up there on weekends and move pigs around or something like that. Um, also, when you move into steep areas, it can be very difficult to manage cattle. They can actually cause a lot of problems, and even pigs can be a real problem. So the steeper, the less hoggy and piggy, and the more goaty and sheepy right? you get with this type of uh, management and design. So I think you have to think about what you really want. And, and my question would also be, why Simo Pasture? Is it because you've heard me talk about it, you've seen what Mark Shepard has done, and you just like that? Or are you really thinking about the production and you want that type of a production model, i.e. a full-time farm, as you transition out of that job into something else? If that's the case, then if you want to do this for profit, then the no-debt plan may not be the right plan. You know how I feel about debt. I don't like it. I hate it. I think it's cancer. But you know, I do see the point of debt on real property. So if you have enough money to buy the land outright, you may be able to buy a lot more optimal land with like a 50% down type situation. And that might be something that you want to look at. The other thing is you say you're from Pennsylvania. Well, you look at those mountains and you see all the dirt on them, but those mountains are not big piles of dirt. They're big piles of rock with dirt on top of them. And when you start thinking, well, I'll put a terrace in here, well, it depends. It depends. Some places that's easy, some places that's very, very difficult. So, rolling hills, yeah. Rolling hills that have already been cut, yeah, but if you got five to seven years, you're going to have a whole lot of, like in that climate, locusts and chokecherry and shit, there's going to be a thicket by the time you get back. And again, I just don't see you managing livestock in this scenario. So I I would suggest you either look for land that's optimal for silvopasture, which is going to be a lot less steep and a lot less clearing to be done, or you look more toward a homestead-farmstead model. And and what I would tell you, being in Pennsylvania, check uh, Ben Falk's website, Whole Systems Design, and I would deeply encourage you, to get up to his property uh, for an event, pay him for a visit fee, whatever it is, and and go through that whole system and look at it and see the way that system works. His property is about 10 acres, and he's intensively managing about five and a half, five to six of it. He grazes sheep, or he I don't know if he's still doing that, but he was grazing sheep. Runs ducks and geese, doesn't do cattle. Doesn't try to do a silvo pasture, but there are a lot of swales, a lot of trees, a lot of shrubs, a lot of bushes. Um, it produces most of the calories that he and his, his wife consume. They feed a lot of students a lot of food too while they're there. They produce a lot of their own medicine. They grow rice and you wouldn't have to grow rice to do the pond system that he has. You can produce fish with that. It's a very it's actually a more difficult climate than you're in because it's colder. If it works there, it'll work where you are. And, and I really think just to get a handle on what a piece of property can look like and an understanding of what it takes to do it. And Ben owns a mini excavator. I mean, moving this amount of material takes a lot of work, and he's doing basically short, swale-like terraces and planting into them and grazing the sheep in between them. And it's like a, a scaled-down pasture model in some ways. If you want to do it whole hog, I'm going to suggest that you, you try to find some people that are doing it. You know, maybe uh, Peter Allen, who was just on, uh, Grant Schultz, and, and spend the time and some money and get out to their farms, or Mark Shepard get out to their farms and see how it's done and understand it. So, buying a mountainside and trying to do this is going to be extremely difficult extremely difficult now how might also this be approached i don't you didn't tell me how much land you're looking to buy you know is it is it 10 acres is it 20 is it 40 you know mountain land has some real advantages for for a farm setter if you can find mountain land That has two or three acres that are optimal for uh, a little, you know, a little uh, pasture action, uh, your home site, uh, your gardens, and your things like that. And leave the rest of it wooded. Your climate, you know, tune into yesterday's or Wednesday's show on the Scout's Guide to Wild Edibles, has so much that's just produced by the forest. And you can go in and clear out some small glades and maybe plant in some things that will do well in them here and there, but you got to understand, you do mountain land in Pennsylvania, or I don't know, maybe you would, I can't imagine that you would choose New York or New Jersey, but somewhere around there, Ohio, Virginia, West Virginia, um, deer, lots of deer. And any kind of fruit trees or whatever, you're going to have to use some electrical protection for, uh, you're going to have to get them up above the browse line as quickly as possible, etc. You're not going to be able to grow any kind of bushes and shrubs, low stuff, in that climate without doing a lot of electrical infrastructure to keep the deer out. So when you when you kind of bring the lens back and kind of do like your little homestead base. Well, it's easy to throw some electric wire around a garden. And how big a garden does your family need? Even a a, a market garden, you know, a, a half-acre market garden is a massive amount of production. And if you're moving five to seven hours out, you're probably not in a position where you're going to be doing a lot of direct consumer sales, so that probably wouldn't work. So I think you have to really look at what you want here. And just because you can buy land outright cheap doesn't mean it's the right land for you. You have to look at it and determine what you want it to be. Now, we grazed some cattle on some pretty steep slopes in West Virginia, and they did okay. But it made everything more difficult. Everything more difficult. And the wooded areas, without major heavy equipment, are just unbelievably tough. And you need to understand something. When you look at a mountainside and say, well, we can... We can clear, you know, two or three acres, strip right there. We can bring in, a, even if you can account for the cost, bring an excavator, put a terrace in, uh, put a sweat, whatever it is you want to do, you know, a, 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 a ridge dam, whatever. You have to look at it and actually determine geologically if it's possible, if it's responsible, if it's safe. Because... It's going to depend on how far you go down in the dirt before you hit granite, which is what you're going to have most of the places in your area is granite below the surface. And, you know, that's why I recommend Ben Falk. I really recommend that you you, you do whatever it takes before you make this investment and get to to the whole systems design farm up in Vermont. Uh, You could drive there from just about anywhere in Pennsylvania in a day, or less, depending on what part of Pennsylvania you're in. Um, You know, I I don't know of someone in the type of terrain you're talking about who's done more with it than Ben. And I think you'd really be selling yourself short – not to take advantage of it. And, you know, I don't think Ben just drop in and say hello. I mean, he has a business and a job and a livelihood like anybody else, but I'm sure if you contacted him, he would either be able to say, hey, we have something going on and go up for an event, or, hey, what would you charge me for one day of your time on your side walking through me through everything and explain everything to me? And uh, I think that'll that will open your eyes as to what's possible. And if you want to go large scale, Grant Schultz, Peter Allen, Mark Shepard, one of those guys, get to their farm, see how it works. It's what it's going to take for you to really realize what you're biting off, and it's going to make you look more to rolling hills than it is to mountainsides really, really quickly. Um, Now, a lot of times you can get a lot of land, and you got a big flat piece and a big mountainous piece. That can be really great. But I'll leave it there. You need to do more research about what you really want. And if you want more of my advice, you need to tell me more about what you really want, the size of the land, what you're thinking, why you're thinking that way. And I'll be happy to take a second pass at this one for you. Guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I I love doing the Expert Council show. So much diversity of knowledge. Remember, we'd love to hear from you questions for the Expert Council. Just send them to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC Expert in the subject line. And then my question is for Expert Council Member Bloom, put their name in there. It'll make it more likely that I'll find it when I'm putting together uh, monthly and, and bi-monthly documents for them uh, to, to, uh, to to make sure it gets included because I might miss it otherwise. Then give me your details after your question. Make your question brief. This last one for me was perfect. My question is, how realistic is it to turn mountain land? Has either been clear cut or completely, or just heavily wooded into silvopasture type system? That was the whole question. Then I got a bunch of details. That makes sense, and he knew what he was asking me. He knew what he was asking me. And that way I knew what he was asking me, and I could give him the best answer I could. Do that for our expert counsel folks as well. Uh, and if you like this show and you want to support our work, remember that like the most easy way to do that, the one that doesn't cost you a penny, is to do your Amazon shopping through our link at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you end up at a page on the Survival Podcast website. There's a little link there to go to Amazon. You click that link, and woohoo, you're on Amazon. You'll never see us again unless you want to. You buy your stuff. It doesn't cost you nothing extra. It doesn't take you any more time. It doesn't have a special surcharge for Jack. It's the same price you would have paid if you just went to Amazon. And we get credit for your sale, and that helps us a lot. So please consider doing that. Every day I try to put out an item for review um, from Amazon. Today I have a set of hand pruners. The Felco F2 hand pruner, which to me is the, I would call it the Cadillac, but I think that undersells it. I would say this is the Ferrari of hand pruners. They ain't cheap, they're about 50 bucks. But I've owned a lot of hand pruners that I've spent 15, 20, 25 bucks on that I don't like. And I own one pair of Felco F2s, and when I finally do wear the blade out on it, I'll buy a new blade for 17 bucks, put it on, and I'll keep going. Again, tools are the place I believe in the buy once, cry once philosophy, and the Felcos are the tool. I have, I have yet to find something better. If I do, I'll recommend it. And it would have to be a lot better to pay more for it too, because these things are awesome. Um, I do have some recommendations for people that just, you know, want a pair of pruners, and basically they're, uh the Corona sixty two fifty at twenty eight bucks and the Corona seven uh seventy one hundred D at about twenty dollars. Those are a couple lower end pruners if you need pruners this time of year, uh that are okay. But if you cannot step up to the Felcos. they 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 just prune so beautifully. Uh they're easy to sharpen. I have a link to a little uh sharpening tool that you can buy uh that's ironically made by um, Corona, because Felco doesn't make a carbide sharpener. I have a video in the the, the notes today for you on the Amazon item of the day that's a, a gardener showing different ways to sharpen printers, which I think is important to know. Um, I also have another recommendation in the write-up today at tspaz.com um, that is if you are someone with smaller hands, Uh, The F2 is a full-size pruner. Uh, I like that because it gives you a lot of leverage, but some people, especially ladies with smaller hands, find it a bit big to work with. There's another set of pruners called the F6. It's scaled down. It also has the ability to switch out a blade. It is a fantastic set of pruners, and you know I wouldn't mind having one around here for smaller jobs, but that's the thing. You get less smaller tools, less leverage. So on uh, most of the stuff you prune it won't really matter, but on some of the bigger stock that you might have to prune, it's a little bit more difficult. So it's just something to think about. Anyway, again, the Felco F2 uh, pruners, they're just the best. And, and again, when it comes to tools, I believe if you can afford it, buy the best. When it comes to cars, I'd like to buy the best, but I can't afford it. But stretching 20 bucks more for a pair of pruners you're going to use for 10 years uh, for a pair of pruners that if they do, you do wear them out the blade, you can just buy another blade for less than half the cost and replace it. I, I just think that's the way to go. I try to give you quality recommendations, and I can't do higher quality than these pruners. But again, all of your Amazon shopping, if you just consider doing it through T-Spaz, you'll support us, and it won't cost you anything. It won't cost you a dime, uh, especially when it's stuff you were just going to buy anyway. Uh, next up, uh, Song of the Day. Song of the Day today is the first song. Since we've started doing the, you know, the, the number one song of the year of the episode, so 1950, uh, number one song, um, was by Nat King Cole. And it is, it's a song I bet you've heard. It's called Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa, Mona, I shouldn't butcher the song. Um, it's the first song of, since we've made this decision, that I, I listen to and say, that's a beautiful song. It's an absolutely beautiful song. You can see why it was number one. And you see kind of this, 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 the story of America in our music and our choices for number one and where people are and what people are thinking. Remember that yesterday we had this deep, dark, kind of cowboy legend ballad thing about, you know, Ghost Riders in the Sky. And, and the year before we had this song called Buttons and Bows, which was basically like getting the hell off the prairie and moving back to the city. And both of those kind of show the, 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 the country's uh, affinity for the cowboy and, and the cowboy lifestyle and the, the rural lifestyle. But yet, uh, and accept that more and more people are moving to the suburbs for that easier life. And then all of a sudden it just shifts into this song. It's just a, a really pretty song. But again, what's going on? Baby boomers are booming out Babies. This is baby booming music right here, guys. Nat King Cole with Mona Lisa. And with that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't.
0: Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with, the mystic smile Is it only cause you're lonely They have blamed you For that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile Do you smile to tempt a lover Mona Lisa Or is this your way To hide a broken heart, many dreams have been brought to your doorstep. They just lie there and they die there. Are you warm? Are you real, Mona Lisa? Just a cold and lonely Lovely work of art And they die there Are you warm, are you real Mona Lisa Are just a cold and lonely Lovely work of art Mona Lisa mona oh, no.